Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Rising risks, the IMF shaving growth forecasts amid rocketing prices, COVID concerns, and supply chain fears. Coal complications, China's fuel cost surges, flooding impacts mining, and Bitcoin bashing. Jamie Dimon says the cryptocurrency is worthless. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to First Move, as always, and a very busy Tuesday coming up. We'll be talking pandemic recovery, protests and vaccinations with Brazil's economy minister. Also, the G20 meeting on the crisis in Afghanistan today, too. We'll ask the nation's former central bank governor why restarting international aid is essential. For now, here's a snapshot of the Wall Street walk. It's actually more of a crawl, as you can see. It's energy, actually, that continues to sap the energy from investor sentiment. We have one eye on upcoming earnings, too, including JP Morgan, Bank of America and Citi. It's all the big banks. But the real focus remains on inflation data tomorrow and directly tied to that, of course, the heat that we're continuing to see amongst the energy complex. Brent crude now above $83 a barrel. That's for the first time since 2018. The White House says it stands by its call for OPEC plus to do more. They, of course, have strategic reserves that they can release too, although the message so far has been not touching those. In the meantime, U.S. natural gas futures falling to a two-week low on rising output and milder weather forecasts. But in Europe, of course, prices keep on rising as colder temperatures approach. And this concern permeating across the Asia session as well. And then you can add to that another missed international bond payment for the Chinese property giant Evergrande. And you get a pretty toxic miss because those red arrows show that's the third missed interest payment, in fact, in three weeks. So there's plenty of risks. And the International Monetary Fund stands ready to assess them all. And that's where we begin the drivers. A recovery hobbled by the pandemic. The International Monetary Fund downgrading this year's global growth forecast, saying supply chains have been hit hard by outbreaks of the Delta strain. Claire Sebastian joins us and has been poring over this multi-page report that I know was just released. Um, for this For me, though, this is less about the slight shaving of the IMF growth forecasts, Claire. It's all about the risks. And what they're saying is the risks are still to the downside as far as growth is concerned and the risks are to the upside on prices. And that, for me, spells trouble. Yes. So what the IMF is saying, Julia, is that right now forecasts are more likely to disappoint than they are to surprise to the upside. They're saying that things like rising inflation, food prices, for example, uh, add, you know, disproportionately hit the poor. They're talking about deadlier variants that are still uh, possible out there because of vaccine inequality. They're talking about you know, continuing supply demand mismatches, even climate shocks and cyber attacks. There are a lot of risks out there. But the other really interesting thing about this report was that it really sort of looks closely at the, the top end and the bottom end of the income spectrum. These were where the downgrades were concentrated. Take a look. So while we saw just a a small notch lower for the world as a whole, the biggest downgrade 
went to the United States, a downgrade of 1% to this year's growth forecast compared to their estimate in July. They're blaming both supply-demand mismatches, the the disruptions to the supply chains that we've been seeing, and lower consumer spending, uh, especially in the third quarter. They're also looking at lower-income developing countries. They got a downgrade uh, of almost 1%, 0.9% for this year from a much lower rate. They're at 3% now uh, for the year. They say that, that, that in these countries, out the outlook has darkened considerably due to pandemic dynamics. We're talking vaccine access. In these countries, 96%, the IMF said, uh, of the population uh, in many cases have yet to receive one shot, whereas in advanced economies, up to 60% of populations are now fully vaccinated. They say until we fix this, until advanced economies do more to spread the wealth when it comes to vaccines, we will not get out of this crisis and it will worsen the inequality going forward. Yeah, this is so important. And it echoes what the president of Colombia said on the show yesterday, that the policy choices for the less wealthy nations are becoming that more, much more difficult, whether it's making action on climate change, whether it's trying to protect your domestic economy, making other investments, quite frankly, amid rising inflation and and food price insecurity. You simply can't make all the right choices. And and the IMF saying, to your point, Vaccines have to be a focus. Liquidity has to be a focus. And debt relief, too, has to be a focus. Allow them some room to manoeuvre. Yes, and look, the IMF has been active uh, over the past year and a half. They, they released another sort of $650 billion in what they call special drawing rights, which is essentially aid that they're making available uh, to, to lower-income countries. They say that that has helped. Uh, but among the risks going forward, Julia, is, is how much that the advanced economies continue to spend. They say that the size of the fiscal package uh, in the U.S. could impact uh, the, the sort of global growth outlook going forward. So, so fiscal policy continues to matter a lot, and so does monetary policy. The the other risk is that monetary policy could be tightened too fast. This is a a risk that you and I talk about uh, pretty often when it comes to to, to the Fed and and the sort of delicate balance that they have when they come to to sort of reducing those emergency measures in the economy. Yeah, a um, multi-issue, dimensional challenges um, for all of these countries to deal with and um, plenty of risks out there. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. To China now, coal prices hitting records again on Tuesday as flooding pushed the energy industry deeper into crisis. Torrential rain in two key mining regions has pushed prices up 20 percent since Sunday. Coal-fired power producers will be allowed to charge some customers market prices from Friday. Selena Wang joins me now. How very un-Chinese, Selena, to allow this. And it shows you that the pressures are coming all along the supply chain. What more can you tell us? Julia, right? This all just makes Beijing's job so much harder to try and stem this crisis. You have this heavy flooding we talked about yesterday worsening in neighboring Shanxi and Shanxi province, and it's hit these two key mining hubs that account for nearly half of China's coal output. And an accident at one of the coal mines in this region is making matters worse. A roof collapse killing four miners and injuring four others, according to state media. The local authorities are still investigating the cause of the collapse, and it comes just days after the local government asked these mines to boost their security checks. Now, this flooding in Sanxi, as we talked about yesterday, has shut down 60 coal mines. Now, most of them have since resumed production, but this comes at a time when China is pulling out all of the stops to try and stem this crisis. It's asked coal mines to significantly boost production. It's also now allowing electricity prices to rise as much as 20 percent, which is a big deal in a country where electricity prices are regulated. So when coal prices were rising, many of these power companies were losing money. They 
were hesitant to boost production. But despite these measures being taken, many experts still expect this energy crunch to worsen into these winter months. And these power shortages in China are a result of really a perfect storm of factors. You've got the post-pandemic construction boom combined with China's efforts to tackle the climate crisis earlier this year, shutting down hundreds of coal mines and now extreme weather making all of that worse. Julia. Yeah. And as you say, the boldest reform, actually, of the power sector that we've seen in decades in China. Um, The fear, I think, is, as we've seen in the past, when they try and weather under duress or otherwise enact severe reform very quickly, um, there tends to be a crunch and power prices certainly feeling it. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that report there. Okay, let's move on. Bitcoin blasted. Billionaire Jamie Dimon calling the cryptocurrency, quote, worthless. The CEO of JP Morgan Chase insists that this is just his personal opinion. I personally think that Bitcoin is worthless, but I don't want to be a spokesperson. I don't care. It makes no difference to me. I don't think you should smoke cigarettes either. You know, but now it comes into like, okay, that's Jamie, now JP Morgan. I our clients are adults. They disagree. That's what makes markets. So if they want to have access to buy or sell Bitcoin, you know, we, it's hard. we can't custody it, but we can give them legitimate, as clean as possible access. Paula Monica has more. That's what makes markets, Paul, and that's what makes JP Morgan money, too. Yeah, obviously, uh, you know, Jamie Dimon may have this personal distrust, dislike, whatever you want to call it for Bitcoin. But yeah, you're not going to bite the proverbial hand that feeds you. And uh, there are many people that want to be owning and uh, trading Bitcoin, then JP Morgan Chase will clearly try and profit from that, like many other banks and financial institutions around the world uh, have been doing. Uh, but, uh, you know, diamonds uh, continued attacks on Bitcoin. They don't really seem to be resonating with the cryptocurrency community, because when you look at Bitcoin prices, we're what, hovering around 57,000. Uh, people have pointed out that when Diamond first made very bearish comments about <laughs> crypto, September in 2017, where were Bitcoin prices then? 4,500. Is it a bubble? Will it eventually burst? Perhaps. Could Diamond be vindicated? Maybe. But right now, he's clearly on the wrong side of this long running trade. Yes, there's a lot of people, uh, a lot of rich people actually being driven crazy by his comments. And we'll leave it at that. Um, But he also did make some other points, which I think is very important. And it's something that we've talked about and we continue to talk about on First Move, which is Firstly, I think separating cryptocurrencies from the underlying blockchain technology and perhaps the uses, the positive uses that that might have uh, and is already having, I think, in certain cases in the future. Um, He also raised questions, and this goes to the heart of the investment thesis that a lot of crypto crazies and positive crypto crazies make, and that is the limited supply of Bitcoin. What did you make of this? Yeah, I guess. Well, let's tackle that last point first, Julia. It is a little bizarre to question the long running argument that you have this 21 million cap on Bitcoin and that that does give the bulls an argument that you do have a supply being uh, something that will be fixed. I mean, I don't know why Diamond and Diamond in his comments didn't really give any firm evidence for why he doesn't think that may be the case. So it's kind of like me saying, Julia, the sky isn't blue. Well, 
just go outside and take a look and I'm clearly wrong. So I'm not sure exactly where Diamond is getting this notion that Bitcoin may not be something that has this algorithm in place that will limit supply and could lead to uh, more demand at a fixed supply. But getting back to the other point, Diamond is right, and he's not a total digital payments bear. JP Morgan Chase has something called JPM coin that is allowing people to make payments digitally. He, I think, just makes the argument that the Federal Reserve and central banks around the world are likely to dominate digital money going forward, and that that could be a problem for Bitcoin, Ether, and these scores, the thousands of other cryptocurrencies out there that could fall by the wayside if governments wake up and decide that they want skin in this game in a yeah. major way. I know. I mean, the only challenge I would make to your analogy there is it's like saying the sky is blue while being in a room without windows, because what he's saying is he can't check the algorithm himself, perhaps. And therefore, he's a skeptic. But of course, I guess others have. Um, yeah, Paul, we're going to talk about this again, I'm sure. No end of Jamie Diamond comments as far as this is concerned. Meanwhile, JP Morgan makes money. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some other stories making headlines around the world. Italy is hosting a special G20 summit to address the recent Taliban takeover and growing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. World leaders attending the video conference will focus on aid, security and ongoing evacuation. CNN's Ben Weidman joins us from Rome. Ben, I guess the priority here has to be international aid. Clearly, the money that's held outside of Afghanistan was frozen, those assets frozen. But there is a humanitarian and economic crisis going on in the country and someone has to help address it. Yes, and this is why Mario Draghi, the uh, Italian prime minister, uh, called for this behind-closed-door virtual uh, summit of the G20. Uh, and just before the, this summit began, in fact, uh, the European Union announced that it was providing an additional 700 million euro, that's more than $800 million, in emergency aid, in humanitarian aid, not to the Taliban, to, but programs in in Afghanistan itself, where, of course, the country is going through an economic collapse, keeping in mind that prior to the collapse, the, rather the takeover of the, by the Taliban, that 75% of Afghanistan's revenue came from international aid. So without that, with Afghanistan's assets frozen, uh, the economy is in freefall. Banks are running out of cash. Civil servants haven't been paid. Essentially, the country is in a state of paralysis at this point. And beyond obvious, the obvious concerns about the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan uh, with the Taliban in control there, the rights of women and the freedom of the press, Europe is concerned, for instance, about the possibility of an additional outflow of refugees towards Europe uh, the likes of which we saw back in 2015. This meeting, of course, is not just involving Europe, it involves the United States. All the leaders of the G20 have been invited to participate, but we understand that the leaders of China and Russia, two key members of the G20, are not participating in this virtual summit. So it's questionable what can actually come out of that 
this summit, uh, given that uh, two important countries very close to Afghanistan are not participating. Julia? Thank you, Ben. Ben Weedman in Rome there. Coming up later, more on the summit with my guest, Admal Hamadi. He's former acting governor of the Central Bank of Afghanistan. We'll talk about the financial situation and the risks. Now, so to come on First Move, Brazil's economy minister joins us to discuss vaccines, the COVID recovery and climate goals and averting economic disaster. I ask the former head of Afghanistan's Central Bank, as I mentioned, if there's a way through the country's cash crisis. More to come. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Brazil was one of the country's hardest hit by the coronavirus, with over 600,000 people having died. Only the United States has lost more people. Yet Brazil's vaccine strategy is paying off. More than 70% of Brazilians have had at least one vaccine dose. That compares to 65% in the United States of America. And the economy is fighting back too. The International Monetary Fund says it's now returned to its pre-pandemic level and is predicting 5.3% growth this year, though unemployment remains high at over 14%. To talk through this with us, joining us now, Brazil's Economy Minister, Minister Paulo Guedes. Minister Guedes, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. I think the statistics speak for themselves. There are great challenges. The economy was hit by the coronavirus, but there are also reasons for optimism in the recovery. How optimistic are you, sir? Oh, hi, Julia. Well, uh, I've just updated the, the, the facts on vaccines. Mass vaccination is, a matter of fact, advancing so fast that we have already 90% of population, adult population, that received already the first dose. And 60% of the whole population, adult population, that received, uh, that are fully vaccinated. So we are watching uh, a safe return to work. Uh, The economy is rebounding very sharply. Uh, Brazil dropped less than most advanced country, recovered faster, and is growing higher than the average, not only of Latin America and the Eurozone, but also the advanced countries. So we digitalized 68 million people. Uh, we provided direct income transfers to the most vulnerable citizens. We mass vaccinated the population, the adult population. Uh, we created more than 3 million new jobs since the bottom, from the bottom. Uh, we recovered in a V-shaped, very strong recovery, creating a lot of jobs, three and a half million new formal jobs and another three and a half informal jobs. And hard facts are clear evidence that our policy responses were effective because we preserved one third of the formal jobs with our job preservation program, helping instead of the company firing the guy, they would call, call us since we digitalized at 68 million vulnerables, and then we would give a supplement for uh, the wage payments. So we spent 10.5% of GDP primary deficit, and we bounced it back to one5 again this year. So we sustained a double commitment, uh, health in first place, preserving lives, but on the other hand, fiscal responsibility. So all expenses... Uh, paid uh, on health services, uh, on vaccinations. Uh, we could on the other side. 
we controlled. We didn't give wage increases during these two years. Uh, we are implementing structural reforms. I think Brazil is the only country in the world that is implementing structural reforms during the pandemic. Independent central bank, fiscal triggers, um, um, uh, regulatory frameworks. We are changing the regulatory frameworks for oil and gas, for electricity. Brazil is now the largest uh, investment frontier in the world. Minister, there you have a lot going on as, as you've laid out, and I want to congratulate you on the, on the progress on vaccinations, which is in very which is um, in a huge achievement, I think, given what we're seeing elsewhere in the world. Um, but I do want to ask you, in light of what you've said, and you you mentioned the economy and the fact that you're trying to build jobs and and the progress that you've made there. In some ways, the handling of the pandemic came at great cost human life cost. And it was a choice made by the government and and no, the government's been criticised for it. And we will look back, I'm sure, and talk about it. Was it the right choice to continue to try and battle to keep the economy open, to preserve jobs as best you could, even at the cost of of human life? Is that what you're saying? I don't think this, I don't think this is fair. I think it's political nice. I don't think uh, Brazil made a choice, quite the contrary. Our choice was exactly to preserve lives in the first place. That's why we spent 10 and a half of GDP in income, in direct income transfers to poor people so that they could practice social distancing. That's exactly what happened. We lost 1 million formal jobs in 40 days, 45 days, and we preserved lives exactly extending the social programs, decentralizing money, so there is a lot of political noise saying that we made a choice, the wrong choice. It is quite the contrary. We made the right choice. We preserve lives. We practice social distancing. I myself went uh, for one year and a half. I didn't go to my home in Rio de Janeiro. I spent the whole time uh, in Brasilia working with social distance, with masks, with vaccination. So it is a political, a political noise. All information has signals and noise. Uh, the signals we are giving is exactly that we practice social distance. That's why GDP collapsed 4.1%. Uh, that's why unemployment blowed higher. Uh, but then what happened is that we are vaccinating, mass vaccinating, and the economy is rebounding. And we preserve it. Minister, I want to interrupt you because I do want to talk about the future. I want to talk about tackling unemployment. I also want to talk to you about rising prices because I know this is another challenge that you're facing and you have to tackle. What's the plan as far as getting more of those jobs back? And how concerned are you by rising prices? Well, first about investments and growth. Because we are changing the regulatory framework, uh, we already have investment commitments of more than $100 billion on oil, on natural gas, on renewable energy, wind, um, uh, um, eolic energy, uh, on cabotage. Uh, So Brazil is really with its uh, regulatory framework changes. Uh, is already received $100 billion investment commitments for the future. So the big challenge now that we are facing is how to transform a cyclical recovery uh, out of the COVID uh, based on 
direct income transfers and sustainable consumption. We want to transform this into an investment-based recovery. That's the big challenge ahead. And again, I think Brazil will surprise in the upside. Uh, people were saying that Brazil would collapse uh, 10%, and I saw um, Spain more than 10% drop. I saw Italy more than 8%. I saw UK more than 9%. I saw France more than 7% drop. I saw Germany more than 5%. I saw Japan 45 and Brazil 4%. Exactly because we practiced the social distance. We waited for the vaccines. When the vaccines came, we mass vaccinated the population and the economy bounced back. The I, challenge guess, now, I guess the, the challenge counter to now. that would be that they lost as a proportion less lives. And I don't want to debate it again because, as you say, it feels like political noise. But the comparisons in growth aren't accurate unless you're comparing the human cost too. Um, Minister, we had the president of, of Colombia on the show yesterday and he was saying for less wealthy nations making choices now, and it goes exactly to your point about investing for the future, um, talking about perhaps climate investment as a specific example. He said that the international economy need to allow more leeway for spending for countries like yours. So climate spending, for example, shouldn't be included in the deficit calculation. There should be debt forgiveness for positive investment in things like transitioning your economy and, and climate spending in particular. Would you agree with that? Because that would help. Julia, Julia, we spend, more, we spend more than double the average of emerging countries and 10% more than the average of advanced economies, saving lives. So, I do not accept your narrative. We spend more money saving lives than you. We spend more money saving lives than advanced countries, 10% more. And we use a double the expenditure saving lives than the average of emerging, com um, emerging uh, countries. So having said that, I agree that some relief on debt, some additional help, is very interesting and very important to continue to protect lives. Uh, so be sure of that. The first thing we did was to preserve lives. The second thing was exactly mass vaccination that people could come back to a safe return to work. And this, uh, we, we still have under, uh, 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 still in use all our layers of protection for the poor people, all the layers are still there. We are phasing out very slowly. They were around $100 in the beginning, in the first year. Then we reduced it to $70. So we are reducing slowly these layers of protection as people get back uh, safely return to work. Uh, I think inflation, which was your second issue in the mm. uh, last question, Inflation is all over the world. Half of inflation is exactly food and energy. That's why our protection is still there. We'll keep the protection. We will raise our direct income transfers for people exactly to pay for higher food prices and higher uh, energy prices. And the thing is going on all over the world. Uh, you just announced it before we start talking here. You just announced an increase uh, in the coal prices yes. in China because it is raining too much. And in Brazil, it was the other way around. It's raining too little. 
what sends you, us to the next team, which is exactly climate change. Brazil is entirely involved. We'll be in Glasgow announcing our green growth program, our entire responsibility, uh, commitment, accountability, uh, with responsiveness to the climate change challenge. So it's two and a half billion dollars announced uh, with, with, with uh, exactly with sustainable infrastructure, with climate change, uh, with, uh, uh, we know the future is green. We know the future is digital. And we'll be there. Brazil is a green power. And Brazil is the fourth largest digital market in the world. And it you're also a lot. among the top five nations of issuers of green bonds. I saw that as well in your, um, your climate report as well. Um, so we will talk again about your focus on climate because I am actually fascinated in the work that you're doing. And I actually think that's misunderstood. Um, but I do want to understand, and I, I'm sure you'll forgive me for the question. Um, I want to ask about the findings from the Pandora Papers. Um, and they revealed that you had significant wealth held abroad. And I think there's two questions, really. There's one of transparency and whether the Brazilian people had the right to know. And then I think there's a question of whether you've benefited from things like the fall in the Brazilian real. Second, well, I ask, have you done question. anything wrong? Do you feel like you've done anything wrong? It is a, it is a good question and a chance to explain. Uh, yes. I've done nothing wrong at all. As a matter of fact, before assuming office, I sold my participation in most investments I had directly that I could affect. Uh, I put a blind trust on my Brazilian uh, properties. I sold direct investment. I lost four or five t times more uh, than the value of this company uh, when I accepted to go to the government. Uh, the, the, the offshore is legal, reported uh, to the ethics committee of the presidents. Uh, it's declared to Internal Revenue Service. And it's also registered at the central bank. And I left the board of the company weeks before uh, accepting uh, the office. And more than that, last week, the Supreme Court dismissed the case. So you've done nothing wrong, sir, just to reiterate. Nothing whatsoever. Minister, it was great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for answering my questions. And please come back and talk to us soon because I received your uh, climate report very early this morning and I would love to talk to you specifically about that because I know there's a lot going on in your country. Thank you, Thank sir. Thank you very much, Julia. Thank you. Brazil's economy minister there, Paulo Guides. More to come. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. G20 leaders joining today's virtual summit on Afghanistan are under pressure to avert an economic catastrophe. Italy, hosting the event, says the world's richest countries have a duty to do something. Since the Taliban takeover, banks are running out of dollars, while access to foreign currency and international aid has been blocked. My next guest is a former acting governor at the Central Bank who was forced to leave the country for the safety of his family. Ajmal Amadi is trying to reconcile what happened in the lead-up to that event. He blames a weak government struck by devastating blows from the United States. And Ajmal Amadi joins us now. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm taking comments that you made in an op-ed in Foreign Policy magazine, Ajmal, but I just want to 
get your understanding and your wisdom as someone who I think who knows the financial situation of the country better than anyone. How important is it that foreign governments step up and unlock aid or international bodies like the UN, for example? Someone needs to get financing into the country. Well, thank you very much for having me on the program, Julia. It's an honor to be here. Um, Afghanistan is facing a triple shock and was facing a triple shock even before the current economic crisis. We had the shock of COVID, uh, the shock of conflict, and of drought. So COVID, of course, most countries around the world are having trouble dealing with this issue. And Afghanistan, with its weak health care infrastructure in particular, is having difficulty. Uh, second, Afghanistan also had uh, conflict uh, with tens of thousands being injured or killed over the past few years. And that conflict hasn't subsided. ISIS is still uh, pursuing attacks in Afghanistan. And third is the issue of drought. Afghanistan is facing one of the worst droughts uh, in decades. And so these key issues were hitting the country before this economic crisis. And on top of it now we have uh, the freezing of international reserves and the freezing of international aid flows into the country. And that's going to have severe negative consequences for the economy. Um, I think first of all, you're going to see GDP growth declining, you'll see inflation rising, uh, and as, as a result, uh, poverty is going to increase in the country. So it's a very positive sign, I think, that the G20 met today and is discussing these issues. Can you put some numbers on that just to help us understand? Like, what are we talking about in terms of the impact on growth, the, the number of people living in poverty, the, the risk of inflation and accelerated inflation, just so that people can understand? Are we talking sort of depression on depression style numbers? Absolutely, Julia. So um, I think if we take a look at case studies of other countries uh, in conflict uh, countries, you typically see GDP declines of 10 to 20 percent. And that might be understating the case given the, the three shocks I cited earlier. So in, in Lebanon, currently, GDP is expected to decline um, by significant amounts. I think in Afghanistan, I'd say 20 percent to 30 percent might be the base case figure. If we're taking a look at inflation, it's very tied to the currency rate. And we've already seen the currency rate depreciate by around 10 to 15%. And so I would expect uh, initially for inflation to rise by those figures uh, during the first few months. But coming into next year, I would expect inflation to increase even further, perhaps each, even reaching hyperinflationary figures uh, by mid uh, to end of next year. Um, in terms of poverty, we already had uh, poverty rates above 50% again before this crisis. Uh, the UN, I believe, is now fi uh, forecasting that poverty rates will increase to 92% uh, before uh, the end of this crisis. How likely is a, a banking collapse, uh, a sort of what we'd call a formalized currency crisis, Ajman? I mean, again, and there's been articles written suggesting that there were strange movements of cash out of the central bank to some of the regional areas. And obviously the, the final payment, the transfer payment that would have brought cash into the country because it was obviously done periodically, never took place. And you've tweeted about what happened in those final few days as, and before you left. Um, sort of how likely is it that we see a, a sort of formal banking crisis and a currency collapse based on what you know of that, the cash situation in the country or the lack of cash? Yeah. Unfortunately, it's it's quite likely. Um, one of the last actions I took was to limit withdrawals or place withdrawal limits uh, on uh, withdrawals on, uh, uh, from bank accounts. <clears throat> and the reason for that is uh, we had 
a very drastic change. So before the Taliban took over, we had $9 billion in reserves, which by any foreign metric is a very high level. So it represented approximately 50% of GDP, one of the highest rates in the world, or 15 months import coverage ratio, which is extremely high. The, the standard metric is three months import coverage ratio. So we were many multiples above that in a very solid situation. But of course, those reserves were frozen. The second aspect is donor flows, which were uh, perhaps $5 billion a year, have now been frozen. So when you freeze the stock of assets as well as freeze the flow of assets into the country, you're, you're preparing yourself for some sort of currency crisis. You, you're going to have um, to place withdrawal limits and, and, and uh, um, make it um, uh, make make the assets that you have last for as long as possible. So I think those are some of the key issues that you're looking at. I want to talk about the article because you, and I read it several times, and, and you sounded like someone who was trying to make sense of, of the nonsensical in, in what happened, particularly towards the end, and, and your decision to, to leave quite dramatically. Um, you talk about trying to reform too quickly, perhaps, in the government, not bringing on board vested interests, those that would have helped with security. There was political <coughs> infighting. There were clearly internal issues, but also what happened with the United States and perhaps the, the sort of rug that was pulled when the Doha agreement was signed by the Trump administration and without the involvement of the government. Um, do you think that was the moment where any hope of a future of democracy in, in Afghanistan and being able to hold together meager institutions, let's be clear, um, died? I think that's a, that's a correct framing, Julia. Um, Afghanistan had uh, weak institutional structures. We had the issues that you would find in any frontier market. So we had political infighting, uh, perhaps security forces, uh, I mentioned, had weak security sector leadership. Uh, and there's the issue of corruption. And, and these are issues that affect most emerging market economies or developing economies, uh, but perhaps more so in Afghanistan. And so, but but we were on a somewhat sustainable, uh, slightly improving trajectory. What happened is when the Doha process began, um, was that the U.S. government began negotiating directly with the Taliban, excluding the Afghan government, and that was, I think, the first stage of a pro long process by which most of the actors within Afghanistan and regional actors understood that the U.S. was on the way out, and so therefore. Um, uh, the situation was likely to deteriorate. You're sort of suggesting like it would have been better for the United States to leave rather than negotiating any kind of agreement before they left. I did make note of that. Um, and I, I was a little bit confused. And I think perhaps a lot of participants were confused as to why, if the U.S. wanted to leave, they simply did not um, withdraw troops without engaging with the Taliban firsthand, because uh, there were many aspects of the Doha agreement um, that made the situation worse. One, ex one specific example, of course, is that it forced the Afghan government to release 5,000 Taliban prisoners. So you can imagine um, uh, that prisoners that had been convicted, that had gone through the judicial process, were now being released. And actually, uh, there are now... Um, um, complaints from women judges who are now stuck in Afghanistan who say that the prisoners, the people they put in jail through a judicial process, who are now have been released, 
are now coming after them. And so that that disincentivizes, that um, gives less hope to the people of Afghanistan who are uh, pursuing the rule of law. Just one and so perhaps might have been to leave without signing that agreement. Ajmal, I have about 30 seconds left. I, do you feel guilt for leaving? Do you feel like you could have done more? Or are you just relieved that you protected your family? I think I feel guilt for the staff uh, that I have. I have uh, staff working at the central bank, some of whom are still there. Uh, in particular, we have female um, staff who have been now told to let, stay at home. And uh, these are uh, women who have received bachelor's or master's degrees in finance who are working for a professional central bank and now don't have a particular place to work and don't know what their next step is. So I think from, from my perspective, that's, that's where I wish I could have done better during the evacuation. Uh, but I'm glad that there, this wasn't a macroeconomic or economic collapse. It was a rather a, a political and security sector collapse. And so for that, um, I'm glad we managed uh, the macroeconomic situation professionally. Yeah, you were trying to build a future. Ajmal Amani, thank you for joining us. And come back and talk to us soon, please. Former acting governor of the Central Bank of Afghanistan. Stay well. We're back after this. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. Ambition is one thing, but the president of the UN Climate Change Conference says what's needed from several nations is action. Alec Sharma called for urgency just weeks before COP26 begins in Scotland, and he was speaking in Paris. And that's where we find our Jim Bitterman. Jim, the message we're hearing is deliver or face disaster. Is that right? That's exactly right. And I mean, Sharma couldn't have been clearer this morning. The current action, he said, the current action pledges by nations uh, leave the world well short of the goal of uh, keeping the uh, climate change increase in temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, In fact, uh, it'll be far over that if countries don't step up, uh, according to Sharma. He said, if temperatures continue to rise, we will step through a series of one-way doors the end destination of which is climate catastrophe. And he had uh, some dire predictions for those who were assembled to hear him this morning. And there'll be more people assembled to hear him when he uh, speaks in Glasgow as the president of uh, COP26 uh, just three weeks from now. And I think he's trying to rally support ahead of that, especially support from the G20 nations, which account for about 80 percent of the greenhouse gases that are polluting the atmosphere and raising the temperature, Julia. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing rising prices, but without smart policy action, we could see uh, rising energy prices the same way as we're seeing today. So we've got to get this right. Jim Bitterman, thank you so much for that. Okay, after the break, a billionaire brag. Being only the world's second richest person is a pretty good problem to have, but that hasn't stopped Elon Musk from saying something about it. We'll explain next. Welcome back to First Move. Elon Musk isn't known for pulling his punches, and now he has a new target on social media, Jeff Bezos. Musk, who's currently the richest man in the world, trolled Bezos on Twitter for coming in second place on the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. Christine Romans is here to explain. You know, their combined wealth is more than the GDP of South Africa. Paper wealth, of course, but they're very rich. 
Yeah, they are. And I think this is a one-sided billionaire brag fest because we have not heard from Jeff Bezos at this. But what we're (laughs) hearing from Elon Musk is that the gap is widening. I mean, his wealth has grown. His pile of wealth has grown some $52 billion just since the beginning of this year. That puts him far and away on top of this, uh, uh, this list, a list with some very rich people on it. It's interesting, though, the timing here, I think, Julia, because you've got in the United States and actually around the world a global energy crunch, gas prices here that are at a seven-year high and have basically doubled. It's the shortage economy. The Economist magazine calls it the shortage economy. We're talking about inequality around the world that has been exacerbated, frankly, by COVID. And Elon Musk, in vintage Muskian form, is drawing attention to all of his his wealth, even at a time when progressives in the United States are talking about maybe taxing some of those vast riches to help pay to undo the inequality that is a byproduct of the American economy. Interesting, yes. I think, his timing. And he's just putting a big sign on himself. Look at all my money. I know. Astonishing achievement, let's be clear, because in both of these cases, they are innovators. They've created yep. new companies. I mean, that is a huge testament to the environment here, too, and what perhaps in the past, maybe less so today, and we can debate that it allows you to achieve. But I think to your great point with um, great wealth comes great responsibility to perhaps share it. And if not, you're going to come under a lot of pressure as a result of that text or tweet in order to do so. Exactly. And a lot of people this morning are talking about maybe this is sort of frat boy kind of behavior from Elon Musk, right? To put a silver medal around. And he's, you know, we had other kind of worse than frat boy type uh, humor about uh, about Jeff Bezos before. So, you know, I think it is vintage Elon Musk. And this is why some people, frankly, adore him. Right. Because he just says what he wants to say, tweets what he wants to tweet and makes money all along the way. And we talk about it. Wait till energy prices get so high that you can't afford the electricity to recharge your electric vehicle. And then some there of that paper go. wealth dissipates. Mm-mm. Yes. Christine Romans. Thank you. Nice to see you, Julia. As always, a pleasure. <laughs> yes. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at J. Chesley CNN. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.